invite you to turn with me to the little book of Philemon. Philemon, if you don't know where it is, just off the top of your head, it's right on the doorstep of Hebrews. So if you find Hebrews, just go back one, and you'll be there. I told uh, the music team Wednesday night that I'm just so committed to expositional preaching that I'm going to preach an entire book at one time. It takes Randy years to get through a book. And uh, I'm going to get through all one and hopefully in one sermon. Amen. Let us read the word of the Lord. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become, a, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever." No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, in every village, in every hamlet, in every city in England, there is a road that leads to London. Likewise, in every book, in every chapter, and in every verse of Scripture, there is a road that leads to Christ. And so as we are gathered here on this Lord's Day, I would hope that I will show you from this little book of Philemon, this letter from Paul that is somewhat mysterious to us that Christ is woven all through it. Amen? 
Won't you pray with me for just one moment? Father, we thank you for this time together. I pray that I would have clarity, that I would communicate effectively, Father, and that you would, as you will, open the hearts and minds of this congregation to receive your word. Father, we will never cease to give you glory, honor, and praise for it. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Stephen Charnock was an English Puritan minister in the 17th century. He was born in 1628, and he died in 1680. A few years before his death, 1675, he came to one of the larger churches in England at that time, Crosby Hall, to become a co-pastor. And in 1680, prior to his death, he began a series of sermons. These sermons were on the existence and on the characteristics of God. Well, he preached 14 sermons and then was taken home to be with the Lord before he was able to finish his series. But those sermons were so impactful to the church that a couple of years after his death, they were published in book form for the first time. Those books are known as the Discourses Upon the Existence and Attributes of God. Those books are still I might add, in print today, Crossway, the publisher of the ESV Bible, makes a a beautiful set that would be a wonderful pastor appreciation gift or youth minister appreciation gift. (laughs) Pastor John MacArthur was quoted as saying that as a young seminary student reading the works of Charnock, he didn't know that one man could say so much about God. Well, I think in his reading of Charnock and in his subsequent ministry, I'm sure he's found out that our God is a never-ending well of goodness, and we can never exhaust the subject of God. But in all of the attributes, all of the characteristics of our God, I think there is no single attribute that is more unambiguously seen in the planning, the accomplishment, and in the application of our salvation than his mercy. To say it more simply, when we look at our salvation, who we were in sin and who we are in Christ, I don't think we can help but glorify God in his mercy. And so as we look at this wonderful letter from Paul to Philemon, it's really what we're looking at. We're looking at a story of mercy. And it's a twofold mercy. It is both the mercy that we are to show to one another, as well as the mercy that God showed to us. So, before we can understand the letter to Philemon, I need to give you some context, some understanding of what is going on that caused Paul to write this letter. There are three basic characters that we need to remember. There's Paul, who we know. There's a man by the name of Philemon, who the letter was written to. And then there's a man named Onesimus, whom the letter is about. We don't know a lot about Onesimus, but this is what we do know. Onesimus was a slave. He was owned by the man Philemon. And at some point in his life, as a slave at Colossae, which is where they lived, he decided that he was tired of being a slave. He decided that it was time to leave. This was a criminal act, mind you. 
but he decided it was time to run away from his master. So I believe contextually we see from this text that it makes sense he probably robbed Philemon, probably stole a great deal from him, and he left, he escaped, and he ran away to more than likely Rome. There are two basic ideas of where he might have went. He either went to Ephesus or he went to Rome. I think it makes sense he would go to Rome. Picture with me this way. You commit a grievous crime, and there's two places you can go. You can go to Circe and try to hide out at Circe, or you can go to Los Angeles, California. Where do you think you'll have a better chance of blending in with the crowd? I would probably blend in better in Cersei, but anyway. Nonetheless, it seems as if he probably went to Rome. He is there blending in with the crowd, trying to avoid being recognized by anyone that might have known his master. But while he's in Rome, Somehow, some way, we, we don't know how this happened, he meets the Apostle Paul. Now, commentators have all sorts of ideas on how he met Paul. I had one, read one commentary that fleshed out this grand idea of how he was probably at the Colosseum gazing upon the sights, and then someone comes to him and says, oh, brother, I must take you to the holy man. We have no idea. That's all speculation, but somehow, some way, he meets Paul. And if you're any student of the Bible whatsoever, you know that Paul is going to do one thing. He's going to preach the gospel. And so Paul delivers the gospel to him. And by the miraculous will of God, Onesimus, who was a sinful, escaped slave who probably robbed his master. If he didn't rob his master of goods, he certainly robbed him of the service that he owed to him. This once sinful, depraved man is converted to Christ. Christ becomes his Lord, and it appears that Onesimus is a wonderful convert, for the Apostle Paul says that he ministers to him. Now, Paul was in prison at this time. This is one of four prison epistles, as they're known, those being Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So more than likely, the service that Onesimus rendered to Paul was serving him. It was helping to take care of him while he was in prison. Perhaps he ran errands for him or something of that nature. Perhaps Onesimus was some sort of skilled tradesman. He had something he could do for Paul. We don't know. But he becomes important to Paul, so much that Paul calls him his child in the Lord. Well, what happens when we are saved We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens when we are filled with the Holy Spirit is we begin to come under conviction for the things we've done. And undoubtedly, I think this must have happened to Onesimus. This escaped slave, he knows that he's done wrong. And the Holy Spirit of God is working on his heart. Perhaps it was at the very moment of conversion, but if you can imagine with me, he must come to a crisis point. A point where he simply can no longer live with himself. And I think it's at this point he probably went to Paul. Paul becomes sort of his everything while he's in Rome. Yes, he's been converted to Christ and Christ is his Lord, but Paul is his spiritual father. He is his mentor, if you will. So I imagine he probably goes to Paul. Maybe Paul knew that he was a slave. Maybe he knew the entire story. 
But I think what probably happened is something like this. He might have gone to Paul and said, uh, Paul, uh, you know Colossae? Sure, I know Colossae. There's a great church there. In fact, I was just in the, ma- in the process of writing a letter to them to correct some issues and, and encourage them. What about Colossae? He says, well, you know, that's where I'm from. Yes, I knew that was where you were from. I could tell by your Colossian accent. I don't know. There was such a thing. But he says, uh, well, there's a man there named Philemon. You know Philemon? I won that old boy to Christ many years ago. Imagine you knowing Philemon. And we can imagine Paul sort of goes off and Onesimus maybe has to stop him and he says, no, Paul, you don't understand. I don't merely know Philemon. But Philemon is my master who I stole from and ran away from. And, and Paul, my heart is just aching for I know that I've done wrong, but I can't face the idea of going back. You see, the penalty for an escaped slave at this time, it, it could have been something as little, if you will, as a severe beating, but it could have been as much as an execution. And being as that he probably robbed Philemon, I think he was certainly slated for the executioner's block. Well, Paul knows what's right. He says, well, you have to go back. There's just no question about it. You have to go back. And Onesimus is distraught. He says, Paul, I can't do that. They'll, they'll kill me. And look at what God's done. And, and Paul says, you have to go back. But bring me the parchment. Bring me some ink. I'm going to write you this letter. And I don't know if that's how it happened, but I think that's as good an idea as any as to how this letter came about. Philemon is interesting to scholars, especially Pauline scholars, scholars that study the writings of Paul, because it shows an interesting side to Paul. Oftentimes, we want to think of Paul as Paul and the Galatians, the uh, rigorous, hard-hitting defender of the gospel, and he certainly was that, but In Philemon, we see sort of an intimate side to Paul. He says he's a father to this probably young man. And so in these first seven verses that I'd like to direct your attention to, we see really Paul as a friend. Look with me. In our first three verses, he says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I intimated a moment ago that he was in prison But he was in Roman prison. Notice what he says. He says, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus. It's almost as if he says, the imprisonment that I am suffering is not for any crime that I have done, but it is for preaching the gospel of Christ. And I think he's immediately wanting to drive home the importance of this gospel that he preaches, the gospel that saved Onesimus and the gospel that saved Philemon and Timothy Our brother, Timothy, we all know, was Paul's probably chief partner in the ministry, I think would be fair to say. And he says to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. We know who Philemon is. It's this man here at Colossae who is the owner of Onesimus. Paul says that he is our beloved fellow worker. Now, for us to understand this letter properly, we need to get this out of the way, Paul 
is not writing to condemn slavery. We know that slavery is an awful thing. It is, it is intrusive to our modern sensibilities, but that's simply not why Paul is writing. He's writing for the sake of one brother in Christ. And so we need to get this idea out of our head that Onesimus was this wonderful anti-hero sort of guy. He is abused by his evil, tormenting master, and so he just escapes to bear it. No, we need to understand that Onesimus did a bad thing. We need to understand that what Onesimus did was sinful so that we can understand the great grace which he has extended Philemon is Paul's beloved fellow worker. It says, Aphia, our sister, more than likely Aphia was Philemon's wife. And Archippus, our fellow soldier, this was probably their son. It might have been the pastor of the Colossian church. We're not totally sure. Maybe he was both. And the church in your house. John Calvin has an interesting idea in his commentary on Philemon on uh, why he would say the church in Philemon's house. His idea is that Philemon's such a godly man. He is such a, a wonderful father. He's such a wonderful husband, and he leads his family so well that his family is like a church. I don't think that's what he's really saying. I think what he's actually saying is that the church at Colossae meets in Philemon's home. And this is important, for we know that Philemon was probably a man of some wealth. For he owned slaves, we know, and it also appears he owned a home large enough that the church could meet. And then Paul gives a characteristically uh, Pauline greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses four and seven, Paul goes on to extol Philemon and, and his thankfulness, his appreciation for him. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So in verse 4, we see that Paul prays for Philemon and that he's thankful when he prays. And in verse 5, he explains why. He's thankful because of the love and of the faith that he has for the Lord Jesus and for the saints. Now, I think it's certainly Possible that Paul might have had the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in his mind when they came to Christ and they said, Master, what is the great command in all the law? And Jesus said, To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and might and soul. That's what Philemon does. Firstly, it says that he has love and he has faith toward the Lord Jesus. But then what else did Jesus say? Jesus said, The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. And he didn't say love your neighbor as long as they're nice to you. Love your neighbor as long as they're good, godly believers. Love your neighbor as long as they don't persecute you. He simply said to love them. So how much more if we are to love our neighbor regardless of how they treat us, are we to love our fellow members of the body of Christ? And that's precisely what Philemon does. He loves not just Christ, but Christ and his saints. And in verse six, it says this puzzling verse, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective 
for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. In essence, what Paul is saying is the things that you do for the church, for Christ and for the church, they're wonderful and I'm thankful for them and I pray that because you do those things, the fruit of you doing these things is that you will come to a deeper, more intimate, fuller knowledge of the good work that Christ has done in you and the work that he wants to do through you. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul goes on, he's defending his apostleship and he talks about all the horrible things that have happened to him. I'm sure you've heard the, the section before. He's been shipwrecked and he's been beaten and he's been hungry without food and he's been thirsty without drink. And, it, you know, it, things haven't been all great for the apostle. And then he says this, not only this, but the daily stress of the churches is on me. So when Paul says here in Philemon 7, he says, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love. I think the love he's speaking of is not simply the love he extends to Paul, but also the love that he has for the church there at Colossae. It's almost as if he says, because you are there, Philemon, I can worry a little bit less. My stress is lowered greatly because of you, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I'd like you to take note in these first seven verses of the family language that Paul uses. He calls Aphia our sister. Uh, he calls Philemon our beloved brother. And also, notice the importance that he places on the gospel. We know that Paul is all about the gospel of Christ. That's what he lives for. But he emphasizes it in a special way. And he emphasizes the family bond of the church in a special way. And I think it's simply because this, he is about to ask Philemon to do something that is totally contrary to the culture. He's going to ask him to do something that is the total opposite of what he should in fact do according to Roman law and according to Roman culture. And he's confident of Philemon's goodness but it's interesting that he also includes the letter to the church there at Colossae. I think there's a simple explanation. I think he expects the church to keep Philemon accountable. Notice in verse 8, he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required to do what is right. It's right what, Philemon, what Paul is going to ask Philemon to do, and he expects the church to help keep him accountable. Now, we in our day and age, especially here in Western culture, we don't want to be accountable to anyone, especially my generation and younger. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, why we want to do it, with a total disregard for what anyone else thinks about it. And simply put, that is anti-Christ. We are to love the church. We, as the church, we are to love one another. We are to hold one another accountable. At times, we're even to rebuke one another. I use sort of a funny little illustration with youth sometimes. 
Imagine I'm on a canoe trip, and I know all about this canoe trip, and I have a grand old time, and I have a map, and it's all great, and then I get home, and then a friend of mine decides they're going to go on that same trip, and I know that they'll have a great time as long as they don't go over that big 100-foot waterfall. But, you know, if I told them about the waterfall, that would really stress them out, and I would just, I would just hate to ruin their trip. So I'm not gonna tell them about the waterfall. That's what we do when we don't keep each other accountable. When one of us falls into sin and we don't rebuke one another, it's the same thing. We are to love the church of Christ because the church is a family, amen? We are brothers and we are sisters united in Christ. And so accountability is not a negative thing, but it is a godly thing for we are accountable to one another in Christ Jesus. So in verse eight, we see Paul's first appeal to Philemon. And in this section, I think we could say we see Paul the pastor. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Philemon, though I am an apostle and I can order you to do what is right in Christ because it is proper Verse nine, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. He appeals to his age. Not only does he mean his wisdom, but he also says, I am an old man and I am now a prisoner for this very gospel, for the very grace that I am going to ask you to extend, that I am asking you to extend to Onesimus, I am a prisoner for that grace. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. There's that family language again. Brother, sister, father, son. For we are united in Christ. He says, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. This is sort of a funny thing that Paul does here. The word, the name Onesimus means useful. It was a common name for slaves. Uh, there, there's a new slave, what should we call him? <laughs> Let's call him useful. Hopefully he'll live up to his name. And so Paul does this funny thing. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Do you think Paul is using a bit of rhetoric here? Do you think he's pulling on the heartstrings of Philemon? I don't think so. I think every single word that Paul says is nothing but 100% truth. He calls Onesimus his child in the Lord. And he says, as I send him back to you, I'm sending my very heart. In other words, how you treat him is how you're treating my heart. Treat it well. Verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Philemon, I would love to keep him here with me 
Since you're there at Colossae and you can't be here to serve me, you're taking care of the church, I would love if you would let Onesimus be here and let him serve me in your place. But I didn't want to force your hand because I want you to receive the blessing that comes from you willingly sending him. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 15, he's talking about the sovereignty of God. What does sovereignty mean? It means God is in charge. It means that God has a plan. And he says, perhaps, Philemon, this bad thing happened to you. Yes, you were robbed. Yes, you were embarrassed. Yes, you lost the service that Onesimus would rend to you. But perhaps that was the plan of God that he would be parted for a while, that you might have him back forever. But notice how he says that he'll have him back. He says, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I think this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm sending him back to you. He is my very heart. I want you to treat him well. But I want you to celebrate because he is not coming back merely as that same old bondservant, as that same old slave that escaped from you, but now he is coming back as more than that, as a beloved brother. I wonder sometimes about churches. You see churches where they have baptisms and they have people that make Christ Lord, yet there's no celebration. Oh, all right. Add another one to the roll. That's a travesty. Should we not celebrate when someone is added to our flock? Especially when it's a brand new convert to Christ. Should we not celebrate? I think of that old, there's an old hymn, there's a new name written down in glory. And it's mine, yes it's mine. And the angels sing the old, old story, a sinner has come home. Perhaps we should celebrate in the same way that Paul instructs Philemon to celebrate. He says he is not coming back to you as that same old slave. He's not coming back to you as that same sinful, depraved man that he left when he robbed you, when he stole from you, but he's coming back as a brother in Christ. Philemon, do you remember the day that you came to Christ, when Christ saved your soul? Do you remember the change that happened in your life? Do you remember when your affections were no longer on the things of the world, but when they were on the things of Christ? That's happened to Onesimus. It's important that we would celebrate not just when someone comes to faith in Christ, but we should celebrate one another. I don't know about all of you, Sunday is my favorite day of the week. 
And if you can hold up a mirror and look at yourself, you are the reason that it is my favorite day. Because I love to be able to come and celebrate Christ with my brothers and with my sisters. You have no idea, if I could use myself as an illustration for a moment, you have no idea the joy that my wife and I felt when we came here for the first time, when we sang together with you, when we prayed together with you, when we heard preaching together with you, and we, when we responded to that word. We were formerly in a desert, a dry, barren land, desperately needing that well of all goodness that is Christ. And when we came here, we understood what it was to be in a church that glorifies Christ, a church that loves one another, a church that is wanting to fulfill the Great Commission. If you ever wake up on a Sunday morning and you think, I just don't feel like going. I understand we all have those days, but perhaps think of what you might be missing. Think about what you have. We have a wonderful church, a church that fulfills these things, a church that does love one another, a church that does celebrate when someone comes to Christ, a church that celebrates at baptism. And think about what it is you might be missing. That's precisely what Paul wants Philemon to do. He wants Philemon to celebrate and in verse 17, he steps into what I would say is Paul as the advocate. What is an advocate? He is standing in the gap between Philemon and Onesimus. And he says this, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. What remarkable words the apostle Paul writes to Philemon. This is totally contrary to what Philemon should do. According to the culture and according to the law of the time, he should hand him over to the authorities. He should proceed with his execution. But that's not what Paul says. He said, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So if you can imagine with me, Philemon is reading this letter. Aphia is there, Archippus, the members of the church. And Onesimus is standing here, trembling as he is reading the letter. And Philemon reads it and he says, okay, okay, Onesimus. I was pretty sore at you. I've got every right. But since Paul Ask me not to, then I'm not going to do anything. You go back out to the slave quarters and we'll just start afresh tomorrow like nothing happened. And Aphia says, hold on, Philemon. I don't know if you read close enough. Look at what he said there. He says, if you consider Paul your partner, we are supposed to receive Onesimus the way we would receive Paul. Would you send Paul out to the slave quarters? No, never. I would not do that to my dear friend. My mentor in the gospel, I wouldn't send him to the slave quarters. Are you crazy, woman? Well, then I don't think we should send Onesimus out there either. 
This is a remarkable thing that Paul asks. There's a lot of, when you read uh, what the scholars have to say, there's a lot written about how he is not specifically attacking the institution of slavery because for Paul to attack slavery at this time, that would have just totally wiped Christianity off the map. It was so entrenched in Roman society at this time. But I think it's safe to say that just in verse 17, that's a pretty remarkable thing he asks him to do. Make no mistakes. He's not saying, hey, take him back in, let him get back to work doing whatever it was he did before, you know, just pretend like it never happened. No, he doesn't do that. He says, accept him as a brother in Christ. In fact, accept him the way you accept me. Paul is the apostle. He is the sent one. Sent from who? Sent from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the earthly representative of Christ to Philemon, and Philemon certainly would have treated his dear friend with the utmost respect. And so for Paul to say, treat him the way you would treat me. And then in verse 18, he says this. He says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. It's almost like Paul is he's dictating this letter, perhaps. He says, no, 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 give me, give me the parchment. Let me write this. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay what my child owes you. He never says, hey, Philemon, what Onesimus did wasn't really that bad. You should just let it go. No big deal. He doesn't say, hey, Philemon, you know, I know it was a big deal, but let's just pretend like it never happened. No. But what he says is anything that he owes you, I will take care of it. Put it on me. Impute his debt to me. And I will take care of it. And he says to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Sort of a funny thing to say, isn't it? It's almost like, well, I'm not gonna remind you about how you owe me. I don't know if that's what Paul is saying. I wonder if what he's saying is, I will repay it, disregarding that you owe me. Regardless of that, I am going to repay what Onesimus owes you. Yes, brother, verse 20, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Yeah, you can do something for me. Refresh my heart in Christ. Perhaps Philemon had written letters to Paul saying, Paul, if you need anything, just let me know. If you need money, let me know. If you need food, let me know. If you need me to send someone to help you, let me know. You know, maybe that's what was going on. And he says, yes, brother, I do want something from you. But it's not finances, It's not goods. I want you to refresh my heart in Christ. How will you refresh my heart in Christ? By doing this very thing that I have asked you to accept Onesimus back. Confident of your obedience, verse 21, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. He's confident 
of this man, Philemon. He knows Philemon. He knows the walk with Christ, which Philemon walks. He knows the care that he takes for the Colossian church. And he's confident. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. You're not just going to treat Onesimus good. You are going to treat Onesimus as your own. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Now, I don't know if this is Paul's intention, but if you can imagine your Philemon and all this is running through your mind and all the church is there, and you're thinking, well, if I just make it look good, you know, Paul won't know. Paul's in Rome. He's in prison. I'm, you know, maybe all these things are running through his mind. But I don't know. And then Paul says, at the same time, prepare a room because I'm wanting to come visit. Leave the porch light on. That's a little bit of added pressure, isn't it? To do what is right. Not only does he have pressure from his church, which certainly would have kept him accountable, for we know that none of us are better than the other. Perhaps you are blessed to be able to give great financially to your church. Perhaps your broker's a joke. You're all the same in God's kingdom, and we are all to keep each other to the same level of accountability, right? But not only that, but the apostle himself is wanting to come, and he's wanting to stay in Philemon's home. When he shows up, Onesimus better be doing pretty well. He better be sitting in the living room with his feet propped up, the best robe on, the best jewelry, I don't know. But I think it's just a little bit of added pressure, I'm sure, in Philemon's mind. I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Notice the apostle throws that in. I'm hoping that through your prayers, in other words, he says, pray for me. Maybe an added reminder of where he's at, that he is in prison. Something that sort of reminds me of this story. You see, my name is Onesimus. And I had done wrong. And I owed a great debt. And I think if we went around the room, we would know, we would be able to testify that I'm not the only Onesimus here. If you're here and you've come to Christ, you know that there was a great debt that you owed. But just as Paul stepped in as the advocate for Onesimus, there was a man named Christ Jesus that stepped in as the advocate for me. And if you're saved today, he stepped in as the advocate for you. But if you're here and you don't know this man, Christ Jesus, then let me just tell you the good news. That's what gospel means. It means the good news. You see, before you are saved, you are an enemy of God. But Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we're saved by grace through faith, in Christ alone. We have been justified with faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, 
we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean in English? It means that you're a sinner. And you know this. If you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now, you know that you are lost. You know that you are in need of a Savior. You know that you are like Onesimus in Rome. And he knew that what he had done was wrong. And he needed someone to step forward and write this letter. In that same way, Christ has stepped in. He has paid the ultimate price. As Paul says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. It's almost as if on judgment day, when we are standing before God, Christ will step up and say, yes, he has done wrong. Yes, he is a sinner. But charge it to my account, for I already paid his debt. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Christ stands today and says, I have repaid it. The debt that they owed is no longer theirs, but I took the debt on, is what Christ says. So how do we respond to this? We respond by coming to faith in Christ, by making him our Lord. Amen? I think it's so interesting that this letter is included in the canon of Scripture. Because at first glance, it doesn't seem to provide any real doctrinal value. There's no great defense of the gospel, such as in Galatians. There's no great error that he is correcting that churches through the ages would need to see and guard against. But if you look at early church history, I have no doubt that it is supposed to be in the canon of scripture. I don't doubt that one bit, but if you look at early church history, early church history says that Onesimus, someone named Onesimus, would go on to become the bishop of Ephesus. He would go on to be a very well-known preacher, a leader in the church. Now, maybe this is a different Onesimus, but the early church fathers believed that it was the same Onesimus that Paul writes on behalf of and one of the earliest gatherings of the canon, if you will, one of the times when they brought all the inspired writings together and they said, okay, this is the inspired word of God. They would have had the Gospels. They would have had Paul's letters that are included and the, letter, uh, the letters that Peter wrote and the letter from James and Jude. And Onesimus is the bishop there. It was at Ephesus. And we don't know this for sure, but if you can imagine with me, it's sort of fun to think that Onesimus says, I have one more. Let's include this one. For this letter saved my life. He would have remembered the Apostle Paul long gone by this time with great love and with great affection. But I think even more than the Apostle Paul, he would have looked back and said, that is when I first met my Savior, Christ do you remember the day that you first met that man, Christ Jesus? What a great day it is. So I end with this. I'd like to encourage you, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, 
Come to faith in Christ today. Today is the day of salvation, for tomorrow may never come. If you're here today and you know Christ, you've been living for Christ for years maybe, never lose sight of the glory of your salvation. First Timothy says there's one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Christ Jesus. The mediator stepped in between us and God, that gulf that could not be reached. We couldn't reach out to God. The gulf was too great. But that man, Jesus, made a way where it seemed that there was no way. Let us never lose sight of the glory of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we stand in awe of the work that you have done for us. As we look at this wonderful epistle that was written from Paul to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, in it we see our own selves. We were sinful. We were in need of an advocate. And you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, yet took on our sins. He who knew no sin, and he bore our sins on the cross. But Father, we know it didn't end there, for after three days, he was raised to life, the Son of God in power. And it is the Son of God in power that we glorify and who we thank you for. Father, help us that we will never lose sight of the glory of our salvation. Help us that we would never become complacent with the relationship that we have with you and with your son, but that we would be constantly pressing forward, that we would be constantly working in our might to be conformed to the image of Christ, which we know is not our work, but it is, in fact, your work. We thank you for that, Father. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.